This morning's sermon is from Zechariah 12. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. When I strike every horse with the peoples of the peoples with blindness, then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look to him, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over his firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the house of the, the, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites, uh, by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. This is the word of the God. All right, kiddos, you're dismissed. Off you go. Good morning. Good morning to you. All right, it is dark in here, so you might have fallen asleep. Yeah, forgive the lighting. It's not to be mood setting. Uh, we don't have any. Um, grateful for your being here this morning. I've not had a chance to meet you. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my joy to open up to the word to you this morning. Um, and as you heard Daniel uh, pray for in relation to the shootings in uh, Dayton and in El Paso. If it's true that the one in El Paso in particular was motivated by something regarding immigration, that reminds us yet again that the sins of the past as it relates to racism in the United States is not over. Uh, and so there are things in which we need to be thinking about as a church especially. 
And so uh, that leads us into a, a good announcement for August the 24th. Our church has partnered with four other churches. There's five churches throughout the city where we're coming together to think about these issues. Back in April, we considered um, the history of racism in the United States. And on August the 24th, we'll come together to think about current aspects, current systemic injustices uh, that we can be thinking about as churches, as Christians in this city. Uh, that'll be happening again on August the 24th. It'll be half a day. You can register online. Uh, you can find more about information on that online or on uh, the web or on the app. But uh, in relation to the word now, let's now pray and ready our hearts to hear from it. Father, we do thank you for your word. and We pray that you would speak to us through it. Ready us to receive it, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, The Valley of Vision is a, uh, is a title of a little book that's a collection of prayers. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have trouble praying. And so I use that little book to help me pray. Um, and one of the prayers in there at the very front end of it is a, is a prayer called the Valley of Vision. And in it, it describes this paradoxical life that we live in the world as Christians. And here's what it says. It says, the prayer says, Lord, you have brought me into the Valley of Vision where I live in the depths, but see you in the heights. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. Let me find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. This describes the Christian life, doesn't it? Sort of paradoxical life. We seem to be living in between two worlds. Surrounded by brokenness and yet joy remains. And that's a good way to kind of get us thinking about Zechariah 12 this morning. Big idea of the sermon this morning as we see in Zechariah 12 is that we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I think we see that in our own day today. As we mourn the events of yesterday. That's the big idea. We'll see both of those themes through this sermon today as we take a look at Zechariah 12. And just in terms of a little bit of a refresher uh, on Zechariah, we're in chapter 12. Uh, this is Zechariah is the second of the last minor prophets. Historically, this is happening towards the end of the Old Covenant period. So only Malachi and the events of Ezra and Nehemiah come after it. Uh, it's occurring after Israel has returned from 70 years of exile for their sin against God. Uh, Zechariah is encouraging the people of Israel to rebuild the temple, but the whole time he's doing that, he knows that there's something greater that's going to happen after that. And so he's reminding them of that. In particular, he's reminding them of this coming king, that with this coming king, he will bring with him salvation and he will build a greater temple. Uh, and when he comes, he will bring about uh, worldwide justice and worldwide peace. That's the big idea of the book as a whole. And so for today, as we take a look at chapter 12, you'll notice that there's kind of two movements inside chapter 12. You'll see the first movement from verses 1 to 9. The second verse, the second movement is from uh, verses 10 to 14. And you'll notice the repetition of the word on that day happening a lot. Now, this passage in particular, 12, is the first part of the final unit of the book. We've seen sort of five units before. Remember the very first part of repentance. Then we got those eight visions and it kind of moved through. Well, here we're in the final unit that will go from chapter 12 to verse 14. And you're going to hear the repetition of this phrase on that day a lot. In fact, 
17 times you'll hear that words, those words on that day. And on that day, those words should be understood to be sort of an epic, a period of time in which these things are going to happen. And so, again, we're going to take a look at those two sort of movements in the first part. So the first part, as I mentioned, in chapter 12 is verses 1 to 9. And there we learn about a great battle that's going to occur. A great battle. There's two sides in this fight on that day in verses 1 to 9. On the one side in this fight, you have the entire earth. Uh, In particular, you have the surrounding regions of Israel that are coming around Israel. You can see that there in verses 2 and 3. Uh, These people that surround Israel, they are marked by their being against Jerusalem. You can see that in verse 9. More on that in a moment. The surrounding regions and the earth at large we see are going to uh, kind of bring this siege against Jerusalem and Judah at large. Which then leads to the people on the other side of the fight, as it were. On the other side of the fight, not only do you have the peoples of Jerusalem that are being surrounded, the people of Judah, the house of David, most importantly, you have the Lord. The Lord is there. Notice the all caps there in verse 1 of the Lord. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A particular God. The one true God. It's a specific God. It's the God that makes and sustains the world. You see that in verse 1. Now, unfortunately, the ESV, the translation that we use, they put those languages that God made the world, He sustained the world, they put those in kind of past tense. Actually, in Hebrew, in the original language, those are in present active tense. In other words, it's reading like this. God, the one true God, the Lord, He stretches out the heavens. He lays the foundation of the earth. Who forms the spirit of man. In other words, the God of the Bible is the one that makes the world, the one that sustains the world even as we speak. So He is active in the world right now. I know it doesn't seem like it sometimes, but He is active in the world. And as this battle will go about, it will picture the kind of final battle, how God was there at the beginning. He sustains the world and he'll be there. He will be there at the end. And he's going to do something about it there at the end. He started the world. He sustains the world. He will finish it in the way that it ought to go. And so it's good for us to pause and consider that reality, namely that there is a God who makes and sustains the world. We live in a society that increasingly attempts to nudge the acknowledgement of God out of the reality. And so friends, we need to stop and consider it for a moment. Again, you can see it right there in verse 1. The God of the Bible makes the world. He gives life to the world. He gives life to humanity. And God is bringing the world to the end for which He made it. There is no other God. Mankind, friends, is not at the center of the universe. This God of the Bible is. And the more that our individual lives and our lives together recognize and operate under this reality, the better off we'll be. The more that God is seen to be in the center. And likewise, if we do the opposite, if we attempt to sort of shove ourselves and put ourselves in the middle, then the worse off it'll be. Like gravity, friends, you can acknowledge this or not. The centered aspect of God making the world, working in the world. You can acknowledge this or not, but either way, we're forced to deal with it. There's one God and He is active in the world. He deserves our attention. He deserves our worship. Which leads us back to that battle we read about here. The Lord, Jerusalem, Judah, the house of David, they're on one side. The other side is the entire world, as it were, especially the surrounding regions. And they've surrounded the region of Judah because they are against the Lord as is evidenced by their being against Jerusalem. So, We see this is all going to happen again on that day, that future epic. But what's going to happen in the battle? 
Well, look at verse two. The Lord will make Jerusalem a cup of staggering, staggering. So, in other words, you drink this cup, you approach Jerusalem, you stagger, you fall. Verse three, we see that Jerusalem will be a stone for all the peoples. So like that cup, you try and lift the stone of Jerusalem, it will break upon you. You will break in particular. You will break. It won't break. Verse four, the Lord will strike every horse with panic and the riders with madness. Verse five, the inhabitants of Jerusalem will say in that day that they have strength. Notice where their strength comes, though, through the Lord of hosts, their God. And we know that language of the Lord of hosts. We've seen that a lot in Zechariah, haven't we? That, of course, means the Lord is the Lord of the army, his people. He will give strength to Jerusalem in the fight. And in verse six, we learn that they will burn up or devour the surrounding peoples. And Jerusalem shall again be inhabited. In verse seven, we see that Judah will get a kind of glory that surpasses the glory that is due to the house of David and the house of Jerusalem. And then we get those beautiful words in verse 8. The Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day will be like David. Which is to say, they're going to be mighty like David. David was the greatest king in Israel's history. He conquered more territory than any other king that came after him. And so as a result, God is saying that the feeblest among us in the church, in God's people, as I'm going to make the case in a moment, they will be strong like him. Like God. We see that they're going to be like God. The feeblest among them will be like them. Uh, and we find there that the house of David will be like God. We see there that the that they will have the angel of the Lord go before them. So, guys, when you kind of put all this together, it's difficult to consider how the author might figure a greater way out to explain the power, the strength and the might of God working amongst his people in the midst of this fight. And then we get that summary verse in verse nine. I, that is the Lord, will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So the nations are coming to Jerusalem and Judah. They're surrounding his people. And as soon as it does, the Lord working through his people, he puts the smack down on these guys and down they go. Sort of how it goes. He destroys them, protecting his people, leading them into victory, bringing glory to Judah as to Jerusalem and the house of David at large. And all of this is going to happen. This battle, this victory is going to happen on that day. Now, You're listening to me going, okay, great, Nathan. But when does all this happen? Good question. This is what I've been giving most of my time to this week. Trying to understand this. This is the hard part of interpreting the passage. We can see what is happening here in the passage, but when is this going to, when is this going to happen? Has it happened already? These are good questions. And I realize that as we break into this stuff, we're going to kind of get into kind of end times theology. If you're anything like me, some of you uh, are not real interested in this kind of stuff. I can remember in systematic theology in, in seminary, my professor would say there's, you know, premillennialists, there's amillennialists, and then there's panmillennialists. And therefore, whatever pans out. Right. And I remember like, yeah, that's me. Right. Uh, and I wouldn't give myself to studying this stuff. But guys, the reality is God has given us a lot. This was the thing that convicted me. I went years for not studying this. This is the weakest part of my theology. I went years for not studying this stuff, but I started to think God gave us all kinds of words about end time stuff. So we should it's his good word, too. So we need to study it and think about it. And so if this these kinds of ideas are hard for you, let me encourage you. If you trust Jesus, love the Bible, think about these things as we work through them. So let's dig in. When did these things happen? When does this battle happen? Well, there are two main historic camps that the church has sort of understood these 
two different things to be. So two lines of thinking, two separate lines of thinking that are similar but distinct in terms of how Christians have thought about these passages as to when they're going to happen. The first camp would be called the classical dispensationalists. So in church history, this is a kind of a minority position. Uh, I know it doesn't feel that way. Many of us grew up uh, like I did under this teaching. These are faithful Christians. They see God's dealings with Israel and the church as two separate programs. Right? They see it as two separate programs. So when Zechariah 12.1 reads the word of the Lord concerning Israel, they take that as a strict interpretation. This is all about ethnic Israel. This is about the Jews. This is not about the nations. Or the Christians in the world. It's just the ethnic Jews. And the days of these events, they would say, are after the Lord has finished bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles. So in other words, this has not happened yet. The classical dispensation hasn't happened yet. God is now working among the nations, not primarily amongst the ethnic Jews, which is what he did before. That's what he's doing now. And at the end of this period, they would say, God's going to do Zechariah 12, 1 to 9, amongst the ethnic Israels. So there's going to be a literal battle where uh, they are going to surround literal Judah and it's going to be this kind of literal take where these things happen to ethnic Jews. That's one take of how this happens. A second take would be the covenantal position. Covenantal. When they read the word concerning Israel there in Zechariah 12.1 where these events will happen on that day, the covenantal people would say uh, they see all of God's people that hope in Christ. That's how they see it. That's who the Israel of this passage is. All the people that hope in Christ. So, be they ethnic Jews or Gentiles, the nations who hope in Christ alone for salvation. That's who this prophecy here is for. They are, they are the Jerusalem, since their, or since our residency is in the New Jerusalem. Yeah. So the surrounding nations of the earth in this passage then, are all those then that don't hope in Jesus. Don't hope in Christ. Don't look to Christ for salvation. And so they would see it that way because, remember going back to last week in Zechariah 11, uh, they would see it that way because the Lord has broken his covenant with ethnic Israel. Remember that annulment we saw with the two staffs due to their prolonged idolatry. The Lord has annulled that covenant. And so now he is turning to the nations to fill up his redeemed, which, of course, includes ethnic Jews that hope in Christ. So, in other words, in this day that Zechariah is talking about, God's activity is no longer centered on establishing an ethnic Jewish theocracy or a geopolitical state as God has done in the past. Now God is working amongst the nations. In other words, in the words of Jesus, He is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Jew or Gentile. So in other words, this activity of what God is doing in the world is not centered, it's no longer centered on building up the temple. There's no need to rebuild the temple. Right? Christ is the temple. And He is working amongst His people. And so in that sense, all true believers are true Israel. That's how covenantals would understand it. All true believers are true believers. True Israel are true believers. They are the sons of Abraham, as it were. Thus, that New Testament language of Gentiles believers being grafted in to the everlasting covenant, the new covenant. Or that language of new, true Israel. So Christians are true Israel. Let me give you some verses to back this up, how they see this. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and, a, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So Paul's saying there that it's not whether or not you're a Jew outwardly. You have to be one inwardly. In other words, your heart has to be changed. And then Paul also says in Romans 9, 6-8, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, Paul says, that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So whoever the offspring of people are is those that are connected to that promise. That's those that trust in Jesus. And so we know from Genesis 15, Abraham, the father of Israel, he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Therefore, anyone that believes that is trust in Christ alone for salvation, they have been credited to them as righteous, us as righteous. We're clean. And so we are now God's people then. And so while it is true that God still has plans to bring in more ethnic Jews, I think that's exactly what Romans 11 is teaching. His plan is no longer, again, a geopolitical state in the Middle East. That covenant was annulled. It's now Christ and all who are in him, the church in the new covenant. And if you've been with us through that passage in Ephesians, remember when we went to Ephesians chapter 2 together, you remember Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 when it said, Christ is now our peace. In his flesh, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And Ephesians 2.19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Remember all that? Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 also says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. That is, you're Israel. Because you're heirs according to the promise. And guys, this is the whole point of the tearing of the veil, right? When Jesus dies, that veil tears from top to bottom. In other words, indicating all those who hope in Christ all can come into the Holy of Holies and be with God. Now they can come into the temple because Christ is the temple and those that trust Him, now we become the temple. 1 Corinthians 6. So there's no longer a need to build a physical temple since Christ is doing that through His people. And so, to sort of summarize, when God says in Zechariah 12.1, the word of the Lord concerning Israel, just to sort of summarize, the covenantal position would see this as concerning God's people, the redeemed, those that hope in Christ. Well, then you say, all right, Nathan, I can see that. What about the battle? Well, they would see this great battle is in that already not yet camp. You've heard us talk that about that before. Already, not yet. Already, Christ has come on that donkey as the humble king bringing salvation. That's Zechariah 9. Already, Christ the good shepherd has been rejected for 30 silver pieces. That was last week, Zechariah 11. Already, as we will see in Zechariah 12.10, Christ has come and been pierced. And already, Zechariah 13.1, go ahead and look there, you'll see that we've been cleansed. Those that hope in Him have been cleansed from sin. So that's why Jesus could say, it is finished. Already, these things have happened. But what is not yet is all these things that we're reading about here in Zechariah 12. Not yet. We have yet to see this pitched battle where the unbelieving world surrounds God's people, the church, Jerusalem, Judah. And God comes in strength, strengthens His people, and then He destroys them. We haven't seen that yet. Christ has won in the resurrection. He has defeated sin and death. And according to Revelation, Satan knows that his time is short and he is lost. So Christ's victory is complete in the sense that He has paid it all. But it is not yet complete until He returns and finishes it all and brings in the eternal state. It will only be complete when Christ returns and vanquishes all those that are opposed to the Gospel, those that are His people. And He then, Jesus, ushers in the new Jerusalem with resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth, worshiping a resurrected Savior forever and ever. 
So the down payment has been made, but the final installment awaits. The battle that we read about here awaits. And that chapter, Zechariah 12, and even as we look in a moment in Revelation 20, that's the final thing that we wait upon. And you can probably tell where I stand on this. I believe in the position that I've described as the covenantal position. That is, those that are God's people are being referenced here as Jerusalem, as Judah, and we're surrounded by the nations that will come on that final day. And so this fight, this great battle of Zechariah 12, is a real event yet to come. It's the final chapter in the story of redemption. And it is told to us. Let me, let me read this to you. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. I realize this is a lot. I realize that the lights are off. It's kind of hard to stay awake. We're sort of in the weeds, but guys, stay with me. This stuff is huge. This is the final chapter of the story of the world. And I want you to, I'm going to read this Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. I want you to see how similar it sounds to Zechariah 12. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of saints and the beloved city. Notice that. They're surrounding the saints and the beloved city, presumably the new Jerusalem. And then, notice the same language, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. At the end of chapter 20 of Revelation, you get more judgment, and then you get this in Revelation 21. Right after the judgment. We might say, right after the battle. Then... I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Right? New heaven, new earth. Same language as Zechariah 12.1, right? The Lord is sustaining, creating, giving life to men. I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And here it is, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, there's the church, adorned for her husband, there's Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God, same language that we're reading about in Zechariah. As we've been walking through Zechariah, one, two, three, four, five, we've seen all this sort of moving in this direction. Same language. Same language. Zechariah 12, verses 1 to 9 is a promise. It's a promise to His people that He will strengthen them, that He will protect us and bring His people into the end. It's a promise that God will strengthen us and He will fight with us. He will fight that battle and we will uh, fight against those that oppose Him. And victory will come. And then, that eternal state of peace forever. The kind of thing that we even think about in the midst of these shootings. Justice. Doubt and then peace brought in. And so for all of you that are in Christ, for the members of Restoration Church, this is a promise of your, of our final victory. It is hard, right, to kind of work through some of the details of these things. But the big idea is clear. A day will come where the enemy will surround us. And on that day, we will not fear. The feeblest among us will be strengthened like David. We will be like God. The angel of the Lord will go before us. And God will strengthen us. And He will cause us for His glory to win. Judgment will come. The eternal state of peace will come in. God will do it. And finally then, beloved, we will have our Sabbath 
rest forever. And there will be no more sin. There will be no more death. We will dwell in the house of the Lord, the new Jerusalem forever. And so rejoice, beloved. Christ's resurrection proves that he is greater. But he that is in us is greater than all that is in the world. We may suffer now. We may be mocked now. But in the end, the victory of the Lord's. Victory is the Lord's and ours will be his because he will win and we will be in him and he in us. And that's what I mean, guys, by that language of always rejoicing. We're always rejoicing because we know that that down payment has been made and it's going to come. So we can always rejoice no matter how hard things get. There's a sense in which we can always be rejoicing. We're going to talk about the sorrowful piece in a minute. But though we may be sorrowful now, we always have reason to rejoice because nothing is more powerful than the God that is in us and that is working in the world. He has won. He will win. And insofar as he and us and we and him, we have and will be with him and we will enjoy that victory. And let me show you just briefly where Christ sees this himself. Flip over to Luke chapter 20, just quickly. Luke chapter 20. It's a fun passage to sort of cross-reference here. And, 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 and as you go, remember Zechariah 12.3 that talks about this stone that's going to be Jerusalem. Whereas if you try to lift up the stone, you lose. Remember that. Then look at Luke 20, verse 16 to 18. And I'm, I'm going to kind of move on down to verse 18. Jesus has just gotten finished telling the story of the, the parable of the wicked tenants where they reject the stone. They reject Jesus just like in Zechariah 11. And then he comes out of it and then says this in Zechariah, uh, tw- or sorry, Luke 20, verse 18. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's, he's understanding that to be himself. He has been rejected. And everyone, notice the word is everyone, Jew or Gentile. Everyone who falls on that stone, Jesus says, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus has the same understanding. He understands you attack, you attack the church, you attack his people, you attack Jesus, and you attack Jesus, you lose. Which makes us think about Paul, right, on the road to Damascus. When Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? You cannot attack God's people and not lose. And so, beloved, a day is coming where you will stand with Christ. No matter how weak you may feel, he will protect you. He will enable you to fight with him. And our enemies will be brought down. Christ will reign and we will rest with him in the new Jerusalem forever. That's our destiny. That's our destiny. It's where we're going. That's where history is going. Live for that day. Be oriented by that day. That day is real and that day is coming. And friend, for you that is not trusting in Christ, not hoping, not believing in Christ alone for salvation. Friend, listen, if that's you, you can switch sides. You can move from your side of the battle to this side of the battle. You don't have to stay there. Trust in Christ. Love Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. You see, you attack Jesus, you lose. But He's a good Jesus. He's a good King. He's a good and beautiful God that is at work in the world. You can trust Him. He laid His life down for you that you might know Him and love Him and enjoy His victory. Trust Jesus and come to the winning side of the fight. If you want to do that, please come talk to me. Talk to someone afterwards. But for the rest of us, know that as we believe on Christ, hope in Christ, love Him, we all hope in this forever victory. But know, beloved, we do this humbly. We hope 
in this eternal uh, victory. We, we rejoice all the time. We do it humbly because that's what we see in verses 10 to 14. As the victory is Christ and ours in Christ, we also must understand that we have wounded Him ourselves. Look at verse 10. Zechariah 12.10. Notice the I there. That's the Lord talking. And I, the Lord, will pour out on the, on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those in Christ, that is. He will pour out on them a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Why? You should be asking that. Why would He do that? Why would He pour out grace and pleas for mercy? So that when they, it says, the house of David, Jerusalem, those in Christ, when they, he says, look on me. When they look on me, on him, of whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Now you should be asking the question, how is it you can see the Lord and pierce the Lord? How can that happen unless the Lord takes on flesh? John chapter 19, verse 32 to 37. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture. And he quotes Zechariah 12.10. They will look on him whom they have. And Zechariah 12.10 is pointing us directly to Jesus. Directly to Jesus. It shows us not only that Jesus is the Lord in the flesh, since He is the one that is pierced, but shockingly, 12.10 understands that the one who ultimately pierced Him was not the enemies in the fight, nor was it ultimately that Roman soldier. Shockingly, the ones that are understood to pierce Him are the ones that are given grace and mercy that have pierced Him. It's the house of David, the citizen of the New Jerusalem. They are the ones that pierced him. We can be sure that's what it's teaching because the enemies of Christ, they do not have a spirit of grace and prayers for mercy. The enemies of Christ do not mourn for their piercing in Jesus. They rejoice in it. It is those of us who look upon him for hope and salvation. We are the ones that mourn. We mourn because we have pierced him. And because we know that and grieve, The Lord in His kindness gives us a spirit of grace and prayers for mercy. Which, by the way, explains why the mourning is so severe. Weeping bitterly like the loss of a firstborn son. It's severe because the ones that love Him and hope in Him are cut. Because they, because we see, we harmed Him. We hurt Him. The one that brought brought us victory is the one that we hurt. And so the mourning is severe, like the loss of a firstborn son. Both of my children, when they were babies, both of their lives stood in the balance. 
Both of them, there was moments when I didn't think they were going to make it. I thought they were going to die. And by the grace of God, they didn't. However, just for those brief moments when I thought they might, the mourning, the grief, the pain is severe. That's the kind of words that the Lord is conjuring up for those of us that pierced Jesus. That deep mourning, that deep pain. And the mourning for the piercing is deep because we know Christ doesn't deserve it. We do. We are the ones that deserve it, not Him. When you look down there, the remaining portions of that chapter, you'll notice there that this is what, what it's going to do. The remaining portions of chapter 12 is rehearsing how that morning is brought into the individual level. So that's, that's the meaning of the repetition of the word itself and themselves. You see that? All these different houses. The point is, is that the text wants us to understand that it's not just a people that pierced Jesus and mourn and need grace. It's Nathan Knight pierced him. Each of us, insert your name there if you hope in Christ. Your name is right there. Itself, themselves. We individually are the ones that are understood to have pierced Christ. When Christ was nailed to the cross and when he was pierced in the side, we did it. We put him there. We pierced him. Not just collectively, not just namelessly, us individually. Because, as Isaiah tells us, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And so we mourn. And yet, beloved, listen, by his wounds, we are healed. Amen. Friends, until you realize that your sin is against God, that you pierced Him, that your sin put Him there on the cross, until you get to a place that mourns your piercing, your sinning against Christ, friend, until you get there, you will never know your need for grace. You will never get to a place that understands your need for God's mercy because you haven't mourned for what you've done. In other words, until you grieve what you've done to Christ and what you deserve as a result, you will never know the love and the grace and the mercy that God supplies for you because you'll not understand your need for it. See, friends, far too many people believe a thin gospel. A gospel that teaches that we're only diseased, that we've done nothing wrong, we're just broken, and so just intellectually believe that Christ is the Lord. He died and was raised for your sin. That kind of thin gospel. You're just diseased. You've not done anything wrong. He just came to kind of fix it. So just intellectually believe He's Lord. But friends, that gospel removes all culpability. It removes all guilt. It makes it easier on the lister, but it makes it harder for them to understand grace. Many of these same people will live in the promises of Zechariah 12, 1-9. The victory of Christ without ever getting to Zechariah 12.10, that they pierced Him. Their Christianity, friends, is thin, it's weak, it's even worldly in a sense, because they've never mourned for their sin against Christ. They never see their need for a spirit of grace and prayers for mercy. Friends, it wasn't mere coincidence that the beatitude that followed poverty in spirit was what? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. 
When Christ recognized that our souls, uh, when we recognize that our souls are impoverished for having pierced Christ, we then should naturally mourn for him of whom our soul loves. And that's when the Lord gives us grace that comforts us in our mourning. And he does comfort us, doesn't he? He does comfort for those of us that believe. Look again at how the Lord comforts us. He says in verse 12 or verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's you, Christian. He will pour out on you the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when you see your piercing, you will mourn. But friend, listen, you will not mourn as one that doesn't have hope. You will mourn as one that does have hope. Grace, mercy and hope have been secured for you in the one that you pierced. Because it was by his wounds that you were healed. And the grace and the mercy that led to your mourning and your healing will also lead you, get this, to be enrolled into his army. To fight for his glory on that final day. You will take up a position alongside the rest of God's people to fight against those that fight against him. And you will be strong on that day. Like David. He promises us, doesn't Jesus? He promises that he will go away to prepare a place for us. And he will come back and take us that we may be where he is. This is our life as Christians. We are sorrowful for our having pierced him. But always rejoice. Always rejoice. We can be sorrowful that each of us have shoved the spear into the side of our gracious Savior. And we can always be rejoicing because not only does the Lord give us grace and mercy that comforts us, that heals our souls, forgiving us for having pierced him. We also can be joyful because He protects us. He will embolden us to stand in the sake for the sake of His glory on that final day. And then enjoy everlasting peace. And so, beloved, may our pride be leveled as we mourn what we've done to Christ. May we be sorrowful. But may we also always be rejoicing because it is by His wounds that we have been healed. And we have been and will be brought into this army where we will fight by the strength of the Lord in that final day. And we will win because Christ has already won. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing because of Christ, our hope and our glory, our great shepherd king that not only was pierced, but was pierced by us. But by those wounds, we are healed and are comforted. Hope in him, believe in him and enjoy him forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Father, we agree. We have pierced Jesus. And we mourn for that thought. Have mercy on us. Lord, there it is. This prayer answers that prophecy of 550 years, well, 2,500 years ago. You give us prayers of mercy for knowing when, when You reveal what we've done. And we thank You for that. Jesus, we thank You that by Your wounds we are healed. Thank you that by our mourning we can be comforted. Thank you, God, that a day is coming when there will be one final fight. No more pain. No more suffering. We will be emboldened to fight for our great King of whom we have pierced. And He will strengthen us and lead us into victory. Into the new Jerusalem, which will be inhabited. We pray this day would come soon. And we pray that those that do not believe would come to believe. And we ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.